Hi, I'm Brinley Lear. I'm here talking with Damali Taylor. Uh, Damali and I worked together a dozen years ago. A bit about me, I am a former O'Melveny alum. I was here in 2005 to 2011, somewhere around there. I'm a crypto lawyer, so I've been a general counsel now for a few years. I focus in the area of cryptocurrency, blockchain, distributed ledger, and how that technology is going to make our world better. So we're here talking today, well, I'll tell you a bit more about Damali in a minute. We're here to talk about what success is in the legal profession, diversity, and how to build a career. So let's get started. So I'm Brinley Lear. I'm here with Damali Taylor. I've known Damali for a dozen years. I have been watching Damali's career and been impressed at every step. I think she is super impressive, which you'll hear about. Damali is a law partner here at O'Melveny. Before she joined O'Melveny, she was, or rejoined O'Melveny, she was at the U.S. Attorney's Office. She supervised the Strike Force, which is Organized Crime Strike Force. Before that, a prosecutor in the city of San Francisco, and currently a police commissioner even today. Hi, Brinley. Good to, <laughs> good to be here with you. So where you are now, O'Melveny, you're a partner here. You focus on white-collar criminal defense and investigations. But I thought maybe we could start the conversation at why you wanted to become a lawyer and how all of this began. Oh, wow. That's, you know, <laughs> that's an origin story. It's an origin story. <laughs> I don't know that I ever actually did want to become a lawyer until I became a lawyer. Ah. So, by the way, uh, for our listeners, it's laughable to me that you are interviewing me because you are so fantastic and have such an amazing background um, as one of the few uh, female GCs in a, in a very kind of male-dominated uh, tech industry. And it is ridiculous that you are not the one who is being interviewed today. It I just is want not to put ridiculous. that out there for the record. It is not ridiculous. Record so stamped. Okay. <laughs> so the origin story. You know, I don't know. I, I was in college wanting to be a writer. I was an English major. And like, you know, many, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I won't say like many English majors. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have the imagination to figure out what else to do when I realized I'd be in college for forever, in school for forever, trying to get a master's and PhD. And then I'd be, you know, continue to be broke. And so, you know, I, I went to law school as kind of a placeholder while I figured out what I wanted to, to do with my life. And it turned out that I really enjoyed law school. And then I had significant law school debt. So I started practicing law in part, again, to, to pay off my law school yeah. debt and to figure out what I really loved. And then it turned out I really loved the law. Yeah. So, But, you know, just as you tell that origin story, which is that's a slice of the origin story, you talk about just going to law school. As it turns out, you went to Yale Law School. I mean, that doesn't just happen. How did that happen? How did you even know that going to Yale was a possibility? You know, I didn't. And in many ways, ignorance has been the driving force in my career. I mean, I'm an immigrant. I'm, I'm, I was born in Jamaica. I came to the U.S. when I was 10 years old, living with a single mom and, and my older sister. And my mom's a secretary. Now she's she's an office manager. Uh, but for much of my life, she was a secretary. My, my dad was a singer. He's now deceased. And he moved to the U.S. illegally and lived here illegally for much of his time here. Um, and so I didn't have parents who were college graduates, much less law school graduates, who knew how to direct me about my career or, or what to do. 
And so, you know, I went to Boston University for college and I, that was a geographic decision because I wanted to be far enough away from New York that I had my own life and I was away from my parents and had freedom, but not so far that I would be lonely. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going to Yale because I applied. I, but frankly, I mean, I, I applied to a, a number of schools and I thought I'll go, I'll go to the best one that I get into. And I was shocked when I got into Harvard, and I was even more shocked when I got into Yale. But even to put your application in, so what gave you the the sense that, okay, I want to go to law school, I'm going to try this out, especially as I'm taking a break from my writing career, what made you put an application into the top schools? I, I put an application into maybe 10 different schools, and I just thought, if I get into really good schools, it'll be a sign that I should go to law school because I really didn't want, I didn't know what to do with my career. And I had always gotten good grades. And to me, you know, I was, I grew up in the Bronx. I was from Jamaica. I'm an, you know, I'm an immigrant. So to me, grades were always a way to get out of the Bronx. If I got good grades, then I would have options, whatever those options were. And I remember being in high school and I was talking to my principal who was, you know, a wonderful, well-meaning woman. And I think I told her that I wanted to be a writer and, um, oh, what's the name of that writer? How still I got her group out? Terry McMillan. Mm-hmm. I told her I wanted to be a writer, and she said, oh, like Terry McMillan? And Terry McMillan is a, is a great writer. But in my mind, I was like, no, like Dostoevsky, right? Because yeah. I was this very dramatic teenage girl who was reading, you know. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. And no, so, you're going to write literature. Thank yeah, you very much. But I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have anyone to tell me how to go to, to do anything that I wanted to do. And so I just applied to a bunch of schools on the East Coast because I didn't want to leave the East Coast. And I got into all the law schools that I applied to. And I kept, whenever I got an offer, I kept accepting the offers because I thought it wasn't going to get any better. And so I accepted at Harvard and sent in my check until I got into Yale. And then I had to write Harvard and say, hey, I mean, it it was just so ridiculous and out of the realm of possibility of anything that could happen to me, even getting into any of those schools, much less Yale. And so... I just didn't know any better, so I applied to a bunch of places, and when I got in everywhere, it was like, you've got to be kidding me. It's so interesting that you put in these applications on a whim. When I, when I think about knowing you as an attorney and as a lawyer and the work that you've done and continue to do as a prosecutor and how hard you work and how diligent you are, we are really lucky that you became a lawyer. Like, how lucky for us that that happened. And it seems amazing to me that this wasn't really a possibility from when you were a little girl that you could even think about this as what your life could look like. No, I I never had any idea that my life could look like this. I mean, I didn't even know what I didn't know. Honestly, when I think about the ways that my life could have gone so easily, I mean, if it Mm -hmm. weren't for the fact that I always got good grades, who knows? You are a fabulous lawyer, and I want to talk about when you were a prosecutor, because the cases you worked on, from the bit that I know, were really serious cases. So these are drug cases, murder cases, organized crime cases. You tried those cases. When you think about how many lawyers have real trial experience, it's very few. And I would imagine even fewer women and even fewer women of color. Maybe you can start there. Like, is that true? How many... How many trial lawyers look like you, I guess? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is, as you know, I mean, there is a problem in the legal market with diversity, right? I mean, there there just aren't that many of us. And I don't know if this statistic is true, but I heard it this week, in fact, that 5% um, 
of lawyers in the in the legal market are African American. I mean, that's kind of a shocking percentage. We know that less than two percent of law firm partners are African American. I heard just yesterday that eight percent of law students are African American, so it's a little bit higher. So hopefully, and I think that's a current statistic. So maybe the trend will will trend upwards. But no, I mean, you become very used to being the only in a room. I'm generally <laughs> the only black woman in any room, in any professional setting that I'm in. Um, it's rare that that's not the case. You experience that yourself as a woman, right? You, you get used to being surrounded by people who don't look like you and don't have your experiences. And so you have to be able to talk to a lot of different kinds of people. I don't know if I get used to it. I mean, yeah. I have a different experience, uh, obviously, than, than you do. I don't know if I get used to it. I still find it really frustrating, actually, that we're not farther along. But when I look at gender diversity, it's it's not 5%. No, right? it's a lot so better. Yeah, It's a lot better. We have a long ways to go, but it's it's not 5%, which is, that's a low place to start. I guess better than zero, but I guess I'm curious, when you go back to your time as a prosecutor, was there more diversity there? Were there more trial attorneys that, was the diversity different than it is in a law firm? You know, I, I was an ADA under Kamala Harris's um, direction as she was district attorney. She hired me and she was very committed to making sure that office was diverse. And so there were a lot of black and brown prosecutors in that office at that time, which was really cool mm-hmm. and unique. And I've never practiced in a place with so many black and brown people either before or since. It wasn't that way in the U.S. Attorney's Office. There were, I think, the certainly more than, than in, in, in a law firm setting and probably in, in the tech industry. Um, but when I was there, there were three women and two men. You know, I would say in the, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, there are generally maybe, maybe five of us. What did you learn in that time when you were in an office with a really diverse group of lawyers around you? Well, I think what I learned in that time and what I've learned throughout my career, I mean, I think, I think, and I can't speak for Kamala, but I, I believe that what she was committed to was making sure that the office that prosecutes crime is reflective of the community that it serves, right? And I just think it's important that wherever you are, in, you know, whether in a prosecutor's office or in, in a corporation or in a law firm, you are reflecting the full panoply of the beauty and diversity that we have in our communities because your jurors are not going to be all older white men. Mm. And so, as one of my mentors always used to say, you've got to give everyone something to eat. You've got to give every juror something to eat. You have to be able to speak to a broad cross-section of people. And you're not going to do that if your view of what a lawyer is and your view of what you know it means to convince someone comes from that perspective. The world is much broader than that and wider than that. And our experiences are much broader than that. And so I think, part of Kamala's commitment was to have a deep enough bench that you could give everyone something to eat. Mm -hmm. And I think it's critical to do that, whether you're speaking to juries, whether or not you're trying to, you know, get financing, raise financing, whatever your professional goals are, whatever kind of business you're in, you have to be able to speak to a broader audience than the audience that looks just like you. You have to do that for success. You have to do that for success. And I feel like we know this. There's a lot of discussion in terms of why diversity is so important, why irrespective of your feelings, you should do it for business reasons because it will make you more successful. And yet, we're still looking at 5%. We're still looking at a lack of gender diversity. So what closes that gap between knowing that this is important and actually 
having a change. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think that the way that we have defined success historically has been incredibly narrow. And not to use Hollywood as an example, because, you know, I'm certainly not a Hollywood person, but it's so profound that for most of the, the, the lifetime of the entertain, entertainment industry, there was an idea of what types of films would be successful, right? And then just in the last few years, there has been this influx of films of you know black and brown faces that have just crushed the market. Yeah. And they don't fit any mold of what it meant to be successful, of what audiences would latch on to, right? And so we've got to be able to embrace the idea that we were wrong, mm. we have been wrong, mm. and what we have been thinking leads to success and what success means. And we have left so much food on the table mm-hmm. by viewing professional success in that very narrow way. So for law firm partners and management and senior management to be white men, for big business or for the tech industry to look like white men, mm-hmm. right? You're leaving so much food on the table that you could be eating, mm-hmm. right? That you could be eating, using, sharing. yes, yeah. eating, sharing, using to further your business, your your professional goals, your pot, and Hollywood is just one slice of that, one example of that. But I really, I think we keep ourselves at a disadvantage by thinking that we've got a lock on what success means, and that this diversity thing, we should do it because it's fair, because it's good but not really because it's gonna impact our bottom line because we're so good, we know what our bottom line is, and we're, we're the best, we're already successful. I don't think we have any idea. We have not scratched the surface of how successful we could be mm. if we had different voices, different right. viewpoints, different genders, different colors, different back, I mean, it's, yeah. it, it really does make a difference. So even our idea of success is so limited yes. right now if we're not seeing what it could be with all the different perspectives that, if allowed to be part of the conversation, would just open up all sorts of things. Exactly. Things we can't imagine. Exactly. Hearing. Yeah. You know, I, it's, from the Hollywood example, I think one reason why we've seen different voices is that now people are making their own things. They're telling their own story. Mm-hmm. They're saying, I'm not going to go through the studio. Now I have other options. It's this democratizing aspect. I don't know much more detail than that other than what I watch and I see, oh, well, this is different because there are other studios that can make these, bring these stories to light. Can we apply that to law? So when we think about how do we change the practice of law, how do we bring in more diversity? Is that some way to go about it? Should we encourage more people to go out on their own or? I mean, it shouldn't have to be that way. It's the same thing. For better or for worse, one of the things that you often hear, and I, you know, I did it myself for many years, I was in public interest, I was a government lawyer for many years, but this idea that people who come from disadvantaged communities should give back, which I think is a wonderful thing and it's important to give back, and my public service experience is the most, in many ways, significant, life-defining, self-defining experience of, of my life. But the idea that that's the path and that's what I should be doing because I'm a black girl from the Bronx, I'm a black immigrant girl from the Bronx, is really limiting because the truth is we, meaning people of color, women, transgender, LGBTQ, we we should be everywhere. It shouldn't just be, okay, we're the ones who are, you know, in nonprofits or in the courtroom as government lawyers making no money. It's important to see yourself reflected in every area of society. One of the most profound things for me, I remember when I was growing up, and I can't remember what age, Halle Berry was in 
and forgive me, I can't remember if it's Revlon or CoverGirl, but it was some makeup ad on TV. And she was the first black woman to get like a major contract uh, to be the representative of, of a beauty company. And she was saying in an interview that she did it because it was really important to her to have little black girls see themselves reflected back on television totally. as beautiful. Yeah. Because you never see that. You never see your image reflected back as, oh, you are beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, you are you are the prize. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's so important to have, for me, it's so important to have my face reflected back or to be the face mm-hmm. that's reflected back on, on someone who, who could potentially be coming up. And so I don't know that having this idea of like, you know, people who have been marginalized have to go and start their own firms or that doesn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They shouldn't have to. Yeah, it doesn't do it for me because they shouldn't have to. And because I just think it's such a missed opportunity. Right. But to be a law firm partner and especially at a law firm that is global, that is cutting edge like this one. I mean, that's not easy. That's not open to many people. We should have more women partners. We should have more diversity reflected. How do we open those doors? You know, how did, what, how did you do it, I guess, is, is also the question. Sorry to interrupt. No, I mean, what, you should answer this question yourself. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons why I'm here, you know, it, it isn't lost on me how few black female law firm partners there are. That's not something that was lost on me when I made the decision to come back to private practice. I mean, why I came back to O'Melveny is a very specific thing. I, you know, I love this firm and I love the people here and I think it's a different kind of place. But being a law firm partner at all, there is symbolism in that. Totally. And that symbolism is not lost on me. And so part of me thought, okay, it's, it's, it's really important to do mm-hmm. because we need more representation. And then also part of me thought, why not me? Mm-hmm. It should be me. It should be people like me. And when I say me, I mean kind of the royal me, right? Like it should, you know, I want people of color to look anywhere, you know, whether it's a law firm partnership or management or CEO or GC, you know, and think, why not me? Mm-hmm. There's no reason why it shouldn't be you. And that's part of it. And you, you have a great perspective on this yourself because, you know, I, you and I have talked outside of the context of this podcast about I talk to people in-house all the time and they talk about how difficult uh, the opportunities are to move up and advance in-house. And you had a very liberating perspective on this. So if you could speak for a few minutes on your perspective. What was my liberating perspective? I, mean, I can't remember. You just never viewed it as, it essentially boils down to why not me, right? Yeah. You had you had a plan and that's what you wanted to do and you never considered yeah. that. I, though I think at the time I made the plan, it seemed so out there in terms of possible achievement that it was just great to set goals and I didn't I don't know if I actually I wonder how much of me actually thought I could do it but like anything that you set a goal for or that seems out of your reach I think you realize once you get there oh of course I can do this mm-hmm. oh why didn't I think I could do this and I could have probably done this sooner so exactly. I mean I think for for being in the position that we are that we are far enough in our career that we have a position of power whatever that is I think it's important we keep it. Mm-hmm. We keep it and we make room for the next person and who we want to share this table with us. Exactly. As frustrating as it can be sometimes, but I think we need to stay at the table. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I like to say, certainly to folks at O'Melveny internally, is, you know, I'm lonely. Like, there, there should be lots of us, mm-hmm. right? Because, again, as a business, even from a business perspective, like, you've got to give 
everyone something to eat. Mm-hmm. And so the diversity of O'Melveny or of any law firm or of any technology company should be reflective of the people that you're either trying to serve or you're trying to partner with. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, yeah. it's got to be that way. And more and more, it makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, as a general counsel, when I make decisions of the teams that I want to hire, diversity is right in there. If there's not some diversity, that's a problem. And especially if, especially if they know I, I'm a woman GC, if they show up with no women represented, I almost find it insulting, honestly, that you should know better. Yeah. You should think about you should think about that. And if you're not responsive to that, what else are you going to miss about what might be important to me? Yes. And that's not a good counselor. Yep. So, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. And maybe that's one way that this is going to shift is when clients are demanding it more and more and you realize that this is something you need to deliver. Yeah. Yeah. I think clients are demanding it more and more, but that shouldn't be the reason or the way. No. And I hope not, because this should be self-motivated. Yeah. And I think, I mean, certainly I can, I mean, I can only speak for where I am. Like, we have co- these conversations all the time, and so I have confidence that at least, you know, we are internally driven for this because it matters. But it should be because, you know, candidly, it frustrates me when people talk about diversity and having to explain in 2020 why diversity still. I, I don't think that's a conversation that I should still need to have. Because again, I think our definition of success has been so limited and limiting that I think it's absurd that we should think that what we've been doing for, you know, a hundred years is the only way to do things and there's not mm-hmm. potential for so much more in terms of revenue and growth and success yeah. if we tap into markets and avenues that we have not been considering. Right. I mean, we're in 2020 now. The idea that you would go before a jury of your quote-unquote peers and have no diversity on a trial team, I I hear that, and it's just like, it's just like, it's a kick to the gut. It's such a bad idea. And I think just as when I think about when I hire a team, if they show up and they're not even thinking about how they're showing up and what they're presenting to me, same with the jury. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course you would recognize that. I don't want to miss a topic and... We, we began to open it up and then we moved on. But just your life as a prosecutor in those cases and how that changed you as a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, it changed me as a person. It changed me in, in every way imaginable. I, I know that I have never had a more meaningful job. I can't imagine, I mean, maybe if I were you know an ER doctor, right? I, I can't imagine a more meaningful job. And my background plays into this very much, you know, I am I still very much identify as a poor immigrant girl who grew up in the Bronx and know what it's like to be from certain communities. And, and I, I know what it's like to be a victim in those communities. And I know what it's like to be over-policed in those communities. And so I have a very specific perspective, but it was always very important to me to make sure that, especially with victims who are from those communities who look like me, that, you know, If you're a young black girl in the projects and you get raped or robbed, you call the police, they should be there like that, right? Because you should feel as entitled to justice, to having your needs being met as a rich white lady in Marin. Mm -hmm. That was so important to me in terms of making people feel like they were valued. And some of the people that I advocated for, that I fought for, were the most marginalized people that you could ever imagine. You know, one of the best compliments I ever got was from a judge in San Francisco when I was a DA, and it was a DV case, and my victim was 
a woman who was addicted to crack and was a prostitute and I put her on the stand and at some point afterwards the judge said to me she's and I can't I'm, I'm paraphrasing but she's never seen someone be so kind of out front for for their victim for a victim right like I, I anyone that I put on the stand because it's a terrible and terrifying thing to testify right like right. it's a terrifying thing especially if you've been a victim yes it's victimizing yes right? And so my whole purpose in life was to make people, especially, you know, no one's treated worse than a prostitute. Like, mm. you put someone who is like, you're addicted to crack, you're a prostitute, there's literally no one in life who is treated as more worthless, Yeah. right? And so my whole goal was to make sure that person knew that they were valuable and I had their back. Like, I was out there in front for them. And that was my life as a prosecutor. And this judge, I'll never, I'll never forget it, it's probably one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my life because... That's what mattered to me, especially coming from communities where you call the police and they may not come and there's all this. Criminal justice is reform is such an interesting thing because, yes, there needs to be criminal justice reform, but so much of the messaging ends up being to victims that you shouldn't call the police or when something happens to you, it doesn't really matter, you know? Or the police may make your life more dangerous. Yes, yes. There's all this, like, counter-messaging that it was really important to me to be out in front of and make sure that people knew that I was in it for them. Yeah. And so, you know, it was it was a really profound job. There's nothing like that, you know, like you have, you know, a mom whose kid gets killed three days before Christmas and no one was gonna take that case if, if I didn't take it. Not, not for any fault of the case or, you know, the locals at the time, they just didn't have the capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. Like that is a an incredibly profound thing to be able to, you can't bring that person's child back. Oh, it's such a sense of responsibility. But you are able to say, you matter. What happened to you was wrong, and it matters, and you matter to me. And we want to address it yes. as a community. We yes. want to see that this was yes. wrong, and we want justice. Yes. And it's important for me to fight for justice for you. And so, yeah. yeah, it changed me in every way. It changed me as a person. I think it changed my level of confidence, too, because, you know... Uh, Tell me. I'm a little black girl from the Bronx and I'm, I'm, I'm in court with like a bunch of killers and it's just me. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a certain amount of bravado to do to be able to do that. You have to have a certain amount of, OK, well, let's go. You know, Your first trial. Were you scared when you walked in? No, I, I mean, trials are always scary, but I would always do this thing with I, I always do this thing with trials where it's like I, I, I had to do it a lot more in the beginning. But you go to like, you know, what's the worst that could happen right now? Mm. All right. So I'm like, I'm so nervous. I just like start drooling all over myself. What's going to happen? Is the child going to stop? No. Like we might break for the day like or break for an hour. And then I go and like, you know, pick up all the drool. And then I still have to talk to the jury. Yeah. Right. So you, I would walk through the absolute worst case scenario. Like, you know, I barf all over the table. Like whatever it was, I would yeah. go through it in my head. But then I still have to do it. <laughs> you know, even, if, even if, after I barf all over the table, it's got to be cleaned up. Yeah, <laughs> I still have still to come back going. and present. And that allowed me to just do it anyway. Yeah. And then the fear kind of became part of the the, the energy of it, like yeah. the juice the of it. The gas in your tank. Yeah. Yeah. It is a lot of responsibility. And just how you talk about your commitment to the victims of crimes and the mothers and just your level of service and compassion, there's a lot of stress, right, of I don't want to mess this yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. And there's a fine line between using that as gas in your tank and that becoming debilitating. Yeah. So how, I mean, just tips for the audience. Okay, really tips for me. I'm just curious, how do you manage that? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I think, I think, <laughs> I don't know if this is good or bad. You become, you become comfortable with a certain level of stress, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, and again, I can't, I can't speak for an experience that, that isn't mine, but, but I, it's my belief that, you know, women or people who are part of marginalized community, you get, you get used to feeling like you have to just, you have to work just a little bit harder, yeah, right? Like there's just a little bit more baked into it, and it shouldn't be that way. But I think it is that way. And so that just becomes part of your experience. Um, I think it also speaks to when you do the things that you really want to do in life, they're always scary. Yeah. They're always scary, and you, you do it anyway. Yeah. And you just get prepared to maybe wipe the barf off the table and you keep going. <laughs> yes. The barf will need to be but, cleaned up, and you still have to make that argument. So. Yeah. And if you only did things that didn't scare you, well, what kind of life would that be? And exactly. how much would you stretch and grow? And how interesting would it be? Probably not very. It'd be very comfortable, but probably more boring than that, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. I think about that with public speaking. I I think it's something I need to do because it is a presence that I think is important for the industry I'm in. But do I enjoy it? No. <laughs> I get scared every time. And it, I don't love that, but that's part of it, right? Yeah. It doesn't – I'm not comfortable. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Because it should be you. Yeah. And why not you? Yeah, should be you. Why not you? (laughs) I want to go back to something over-policing. So you talked about being from a community where you have an appreciation for not only the victim aspect, but what it means to be Mm over-policed. And I am a white girl from a farm in the middle of Oregon. I don't know what over-policed. I don't know that experience. So what is that? And... Yeah, let's start there. What is that? Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, there's 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 a real tension, and I, I think it's unfortunate because you know, in discourse in this country, we tend to be very much like one or the other, and I just think that's mm. that's a mistake. And right now, we are in a moment that's a critical moment, an important moment, uh, in a conversation that needs to be had about over policing and the history of over policing in this country. You know, against marginalized communities, that is absolutely key, and and it's important, and you know. In, in my role as a police commissioner, part of what we do is help set the policies for the, the, the police department and help to deal with discipline issues to make sure that we don't continue along that undesirable path. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously there have been lots of examples of minorities being over-policed throughout the history of this country. There's no question. Um, and social justice reform is a real thing and a real thing addressing real problems. But what I don't want to get lost in that conversation, and it's a real tension, but it's a tension that we have to get comfortable with and not just ignore. Because what I hear sometimes, and especially being on the police commission, is things like, you know, the police should be abolished or, you know, things that to me are really concerning. Because, you know, black and brown women are, are, I think the statistic is, you know, 65 times more likely to be the victims of violent crime. And so what you're saying when you say no, no police is essentially saying to, to, to those victims, hey, those things that happen to you, they'll never be addressed. But, that, but you're not the, that, that's not the real issue. The real issue is criminal justice reform. Yeah. And so we've got to be able to hold both things and ha- have the, the same level of commitment to both things. Right. Because the, the victims um, are the same color and the same level of disenchant- disenfranchisement as the the people that you're trying to protect who have been you know the right. victims of, of over policing 
And we have to be able to have the same commitment to, to both of those issues. And think of it as a community, I mean, it is a service, right? Mm-hmm. Yet the point should be your community, in your community, you should feel safe. Yes. Yes. You should feel safe. Yes. And going back to when you talked about being a prosecutor, you should feel like you matter yeah. and you are safe. Yep. So if that's not happening, there's something to address. Yes. So is that your work as a police commissioner? Do you address those those issues? You know, so the police commission, we are an oversight body for the San Francisco Police Department. So that means that we help to to draft the policies that the individual officers have to, you know, live by as as officers and in, in their work and, and if they violate those policies, there are consequences for those violations. Um, and so the the entire department ultimately reports up to the police commission, including the chief. Um, and we're also kind of um, you know, the arbiter of discipline uh, for for serious uh, you know, violations of those policies. Mm-hmm. So you're already a law firm partner. I would imagine your life is pretty busy. Why decide to add that to what you're doing? Because I'm a masochist. (laughs) 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 Really? No, you know, there's this public servant in me that doesn't that that doesn't go away. I mean, you know, one of my favorite quotes is a Lucille Ball quote that says, if you want to get something done, ask a busy person, Mm -hmm. because busy people know that the more you do, the more you can do. and that's what it is. I mean, there's 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 a need to serve in me always that, you know. Yeah. When you play that out, what what is next for you? And you can add this or not to the podcast, but just when you think about what lights you up in the service aspect and being that face for other people to see what is possible, where might you go next? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy my job. I love my job. I think it's important, like we were saying before, I think it's important to be here, um, not from only a, a symbolic standpoint. You know, it's important. To me, it's important for me to be in this role. But I also just, I get a kick out of it. It's really interesting. It's a really, my job is, is varied and, and very intellectually challenging. And, and I, I love solving really complicated, meaty problems yeah, for me people. Too. Me too. So when you think about your career and the legal work you've done, what has been your best legal work? And you were just talking about why you like it here, right? The problems are really meaty. The colleagues are great, right? People here are just exceptionally smart. And not only are they great with the law, but they're probably a concert pianist and speak five languages. Mm -hmm. Like, this is really an extraordinary place. When you think about where you did your best work as a lawyer, what comes to mind? You know, first of all, I like to think that my best work is yet to come. Oh, I love that. Right? Love so that. I don't think I've done it yet, right? That's always next. Mm. Um, but I've done a lot of cool things. You know, I've been really, I've been really blessed um, and really, really fortunate that, you know, I've had a really interesting, cool, broad, diverse career just thus far. I, I mean, I can, there's so many experiences that I could talk about that we'd be here for another hour. I have another hour. <laughs> <laughs> It's good to see you. It's great to see you. (laughs) (laughs) To find more information about Damali, you can find her on the O'Melveny website at www.omm.com and search for Damali Taylor. And to find more information about me, you can search me up on LinkedIn. I'm the only Brindley Lear there. Or you can go to www.celo.org.